Welcome to Shed Life Over. Captain Greg Fletcher, welcome to the shed. So, Hi, thank you for having me here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting topic, mate. Um, let's start quite simple, mate. How did you get into flying? It's very uh, niche. Yeah, it's very niche. Um, it started when I was younger, as a child. Always liked how planes worked, and to this day, it's cool to me how they fly through the air. Um, when I was in late secondary school, joined the Air Cadets, and I was lucky enough to do the gliding scholarship with them. So they literally took me from no experience up to being able to do my first solo, and that was at the age of 17. And then it was a couple of years ago that I started to do my PPL. And yeah, since then, it's just been amazing I'm working through. Oh, that's, that's awesome. What's a, what's a PPL, mate? It's a private pilot's license. Damn. So what does that mean? You can like fly private airline, pri- private jets and stuff for like famous no, celebrities no, no, and no. stuff. <laughs> no, not with that. Uh, private pilot is the first stepping stone into the world of aviation. And with that, you can have your own plane if you wanted to, although that's quite expensive. Or you can rent planes from flying clubs and you can take off, carry up to... 15 passengers but I might not be correct on that um and fly pretty much anywhere in the world with it that's quality so does that restrict the type of aircrafts and stuff you can fly uh yes it does it's up to a maximum weight of just over 5,000 kilograms and of course up to the maximum number of passengers uh also you are restricted to single engines unless you get the tight rating to get a multi-engine. But for the planes I fly, PPAO is perfectly adequate. Okay, so what's the process to get these uh, uh, further type ratings that you said uh, to fly these maybe uh, dual uh, engine flight planes and show? Yeah, uh, so you get your PPL first, and then when you want to move on to say the multi-engine one, you hire a multi-engine airplane, have the instructor, go through the whole training, There'll be a skills test along with it, and there'll be lots of theory exams. So probably also go with it as well. Uh, that's, that's quite interesting. Um, so going back to the types of airlines you can fly and stuff, with this, uh, what was it, PPL license you have? Yes. Yeah, yeah. What, obviously um, how far and where you can fly is determined by the size of the engine, I'm assuming, but give us some yeah. sort of ideas of you know, where this can take you, like globally on a, on a map, for example. Yeah, okay, so we've got the classic trainers, the Piper Warrior and the Cessna 152 or the 172, which is slightly bigger. Uh, with that, you could probably get about three hours to four hours of range out of it, depending on how you fly. And if you flew it good with good wind conditions behind you, you could probably get to Scotland or just about the south of France mm, nice. without having to land. That's pretty cool. I'll so save you a lot of time in the airports, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. It's a lot slower than normal jets, but you're flying it, so who cares? Yeah, there you go. That's pretty cool. You know, like, um, obviously, going through airports and ship, you got to go through a number of different, you know, pillars of security and this and that. How does that sort of vary if you're flying your own plane? Do you know what I mean? Like you said, if you wanted to take a plane down to south of France or up to Scotland, 
How does yep, security okay. come into it? Uh, so for domestic flights in the UK, you hire the plane, do the pre-flight check on it. So just checking out, making sure it's all okay, nothing majorly wrong, and you've got enough fuel to go where you're going. Uh, take off and then land at your destination. You might need to call ahead, let them know that you're coming to get the permission to land there. But apart from that, world's your oyster with it. Uh, when you're going out of the country, you'll need to go to special airports which have custom facilities. So Heathrow is obviously one of them, all the major international airports, but you've also got some smaller ones such as White Waltham in Maidenhead. They're a customs one, you go there, effectively declare your customs, and then when you go abroad, you have to land at another customs one, and then they work out all the tax and stuff that you owe on stuff you're importing into the country. Interesting, very interesting. So it's, you know, um, like air traffic control and stuff like that from major airports. Yeah. Uh, again, what's the sort of equivalent of that for you? Maybe flying from a private airfield or something like that. And uh, do, do they also, I'm assuming they all coordinate together, but are you flying at similar altitudes or, you know, how does it work? So, you know, everything's mapped appropriately. Okay. So I'll give a brief run over of this. Uh, taking White Waltham in Maidenhead, which is nine nautical miles to the west of Heathrow. Um, due to the aircraft coming into Heathrow and how it was all done in the 1950s and all the airspace, there is a maximum height of 2,500 foot going the whole way across London and out to White Waltham. Um, when you're flying VFR, which is visual flight rules, so days with clear blue sky, good weather, good everything, um, you're not allowed to penetrate above into that threshold area, so above 2,500 in there. Otherwise, you'll be breaching airspace, and then the CAA come after you, and bad stuff happens. Wait, um, sorry. So you, you, you're saying you, you're not allowed to go above 2,500 uh, 2 feet in the air no. uh, with this um, license? Not around. You not can, around but London. not around Heathrow. So as you work out from Heathrow, the airspace gets higher and higher. Um, some areas around, say, Norfolk area, Midlands, there's no restrictions there. So you can go up just avoiding... Um, avoiding other planes. Gone dead. <laughs> Let me restart that question. I don't like it. <laughs> no, I mean, right. That makes sense. That makes sense. No, no, that makes sense. Let's go back. Let's go back. <laughs> right. All right, go on. Hit us again. What was the question? It was air, air traffic <laughs> air, air traffic control. Air traffic control. All right. So air traffic controlling controllers, you know, how does it sort of work? Um, you know, these private airfields in comparison to these big airports. So how do you keep everyone in sync together? So there's no sort of, I don't know, catastrophes or any dangerous things happening, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Like, well, you know, how high can you fly your plane basically? Okay. Yeah. So that all depends on where in the country you are. We'll take around London to begin with as that's the most complex in England. Um, as commercial jets, such as the airliners, they have lots of people on, they obviously get priority and restrictions around them. Um, the south east of the UK has airspaces. Uh, actually, the whole of the UK has airspaces. So you've got Class A, which is mainly for the airliners, or if you're flying under instrument flight rules, so that's only using GPS, and instruments in the panel not looking out and properly seeing where you're going. Um, I'm not allowed to fly in that 
as I haven't got that license. Um, but for everyone else recreationally flying, um, you can pretty much fly everywhere. If you need to fly through an area, you can get permission from that air traffic controller for that area. Uh, so for Heathrow, it's Heathrow Radar, and that covers from Whitewall Firm over to the centre of London and from Denham down to Fair Oaks. And you can fly through there. Same for Gatwick, they have their own radar controller. Um, when you're not flying through there, you're just flying in normal unrestricted airspace. Uh, you usually talk to a LAR service, which is a lower airspace. I need to Google what it is. <laughs> oh, come on. Or is this ALOS? LARS, L-A-R-S. Oh, L-A-R-S. Uh, which is a lower airspace radar service. So oh. there's one at Farnborough, which does Farnborough West, Farnborough East. Uh, Bryce, Norton have their own kind of one as well, covering that area. And there's a few of them across the country. And they just um, give you information. They can give you basic info, which will be changes in pressure, uh, weather, and other stuff. Uh, they do traffic, so they can tell you when you're going to have a conflict with another aircraft. It's another recreational flying aircraft, and a few other services as well. But they all talk to each other. They've got you on radar, so they can see you where you are. And that radar is available to all the air traffic controllers. To oh, see. It's you it's quite similar to Flight Radar 24 as well. So you'll have this radar in front of you while flying, and you have to tell these air traffic controllers um, this is me taking off basically and stuff. Uh, not quite. Um, when you take off, you'll be in contact with either the ATC unit, the air traffic control unit on the ground, or you'll just be announcing that you're taking off if it's uncontrolled. Um, when you start to enter unrestricted airspace or restricted, you'll get in contact with that air, tra air traffic controller. And you'll basically contact them, tell them who you are, what you're doing, where you're going. And so they'll get back to you with a squawk code. Now the squawk code is a four digit number, which they assign to you on their end and you put it into your transponder radar unit. So when their radar sends out, you respond with that code and it's a way of communicating between them. So mm -hmm. they know where you are by seeing you on the screen. In the plane, you don't have any of that. You just fly along looking out for traffic or you have devices which feed into your thing so you can see other traffic damn that's uh, very very technical and very interesting, interesting. We have to redo this <laughs> um <laughs> the um no but going back to the heights that you can fly obviously we're talking about commercial right, airlines yeah. what 35 to 40 odd thousand feet right How, what's the difference um, 20 to 30 thousand they usually fly sometimes oh. Up to 40. oh there you go <laughs> Right, I have a picture, bear with. I should all know this, but I don't. That's fine, that's fine. We can uh, crop some bits out to make it look like you know exactly what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Although saying that, I'm tempted to keep the answer in what you told me to re-ask that question. No, no, no. That was pure comedy. <laughs> Wait, should I pause it? Uh, no, really. All right, go so, on. 
but I'll hike some restrictions. Uh, BFR in the UK, so that's visual flight rules. You're looking out, seeing where you're going. You can fly above 19,000 feet if your plane can handle it. So you can fly up there with the jetliners if you wish. Hmm. Um, unless you're going to be going into Class A, which is only the instrument flight rules, which is mainly for the commercial traffic. Um, but yeah, you can fly pretty much any height you want, as long as you're within the restrictions and you're talking to ATC where required. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. Uh, that thing you mentioned, VFR, I know you mentioned something to me before. Yes. Uh, VFR into IFR. Can you explain exactly what that means? Ah, okay. So VFR is when it's pretty much clear blue sky or a few clouds or the clouds are high enough so you can fly under them. Um, but effectively, let me restart. Just so much information. So VFR into IFR is VFR, which is visual flight rules, is when you're flying, you're looking around, uh, you have good visibility all around as well. So you can see where you're going, you can see if there's going to be other traffic and <clears throat> you can see the ground as well. Um, when you fly into IFR, which is instrument flight rules, that's usually when you fly into a cloud or the visibility drops quite significantly. So you can't really see ahead, you can't see to the sides. Um, you lose all spatial awareness, so you literally have to rely on your instruments. Or uh, your radar and stuff. But what, no, what kind of stuff? The... But what kind of stuff would you be looking? I know you're saying spatial awareness. Obviously, that makes sense. But what yeah. kind of things are you looking for? Like I don't know, like a flock of birds or another aircraft or a thunderstorm. Like what's the you know um, the kind of the major things you need to see out there? Yeah. So when you're flying along, you obviously want to have the reference horizon to make sure that you're flying straight and level. Your uh -huh. level, you're not slowly turning or anything. Okay. Um, you want to be when you're navigating. They used to, before GPS, have to look for features on the ground, such as small towns, railway lines, motorway intersections, if they existed, and that's how they would navigate along, along with a few other features, but mainly through dead reckoning, time, speed to work out where they are. Um, but now we've got GPS, it's a lot easier. Um, but what was the question? <laughs> forgot, man. Uh, <laughs> I forgot, man. I forgot. Wait, going back, what's what's dead reckoning? You mentioned that term. What exactly is that? Yeah, so dead reckoning is when you have just a watch and you pre-calculate your distance using the map, using the really see how many miles it is, and then you hop in your plane, set the speed to where you want it to be. And then using the time factor of that, you can work out how long it should take you to get there. When you're flying along, you do the same calculation and see if you're there at that point or not, using the same heading as well. And then that will keep you on your line. Let me start again. Because there's more I want to say now. There's more I want to say. Go on, hear us. <laughs> oh, all your interviews like this. No, yours is the first one where I'm going to have to <laughs> edit the crap out. <laughs> Normally they're completely raw, so this one is like every time oh, you stop, mate. I'm like, oh shit. <clears throat> it's fine, you know, I'll, I'll spend the day uh, editing it. I mean, yeah, what else are you doing? Wait, are we pausing the recording now? No. Right. Dead reckoning. dead reckoning, didn't I? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so dead, dead reckoning is when you have a map, 
you have the distance between your two points and you have the time which it should take you and then you hop in your aircraft you fly the route you check the time and then basically are you there at that point after that time if not you work out where you are on the map using the features on the ground such as train lines villages intersections of roads and you can pinpoint yourself work out how far off track you are and then turn your aircraft so you get back onto track oh nice nice awesome awesome um so you mentioned like gps there and other sort of navigational aids um you know when you see movies and you know i don't know images of pilots and shit like that in the cockpit there's so many different dials and buttons and i don't know gadgets and shit so what kind of yeah i mean what do they all do <laughs> how much of it do you need to yeah, know yeah. Like, you know or, yeah just give us some sort yes. of interpretation of that um so every pilot will have their basic six pack of instruments which will be the altimeter which will tell you how high you are with reference to the pressure level on the ground you have the attitude indicator which will tell you if your plane is pitching up pitching down rolling left rolling right you have the vertical speed indicator which will tell you how many feet per minute you're climbing or descending there's also the turn slip indicator which will tell you if your plane isn't perfectly going through the wind it's kind of slipping or skidding like in a car around the corner there's also the heading indicator which tells you which direction you're going with reference to magnetic north fuck i forgot the last one always one in it there is always one <laughs> ready yep and there's also the airspeed indicator which tells you how fast you're going relative to the airspeed around you if you have a headwind headwind it will say 60 knots when you're actually doing 40 knots across the ground so mm. it's not ground speed it's airspeed oh i see very interesting awesome um one question I had was uh, regarding, you know, the sort of landing gear, uh, you know, if we compare a PPL sort of licensed plane uh, compared to one of those big commercial airlines, um, the landing gear, obviously, you know, the famous scene of the wheels coming in and out as you're taking off and landing, etc. How does that vary kind of the planes you fly and, you know, what other sort of things go into landing perhaps? With the planes I fly is the Cessnas and the Pipers. The basic trainers have a fixed undercarriage. So what that means is when you take off for the whole flight, the wheels will always be in a position ready to land. And that's good for learning and you have to worry about the wheels. Uh, when you move on to the retractable undercarriage, so when the wheels come back up into the plane, that's with the complex license. And you get a few more knots of airspeed against the fixed undercarriage. But apart from that, Everything's still relatively the same between the two planes. Comparing them to the commercial airliners, there's a lot less wheels on the smaller planes that you fly because there's obviously less weight. And when you're coming into land, the whole kind of landing sequence is different. On commercial airliners, they usually come in at a three degree angle to the runway. So it's a nice smooth glide slope down and then the big flare at the end where you feel like you're taking off again. With the smaller aircraft, it's a lot steeper angle in as they can descend quicker. 
and then the flare at the end is a lot more gentle and you just hover above the ground and then touch down gently. So in a way they're the same, but in a way the length of coming into the runway is a lot different between them. Okay. Mm. So one, one really interesting thing about planes, obviously when you're flying, there's a big fear factor around flying because obviously it's, um, it's like a metal, metal bird, you know, flying in, in the air. So it yeah, can scare yeah. a lot of people. And obviously when, it, when something does go wrong, it tends to be quite catastrophic. Uh, why don't you give us some of your um, own personal, I don't know, dangerous moments, uh, you know, in the sky or, you know, maybe some of the safety aspects around this, um, which could either be improved upon or, you know, which caused some of these uh, well-known catastrophes. Yeah, okay. Um, so yeah, flying is quite dangerous in itself as if anything goes wrong, the ground is quite far away and things can go wrong. Um, but to help with that, the planes are properly maintained, especially if you're renting them, they have to be properly maintained. They undergo annual checks on them to make sure everything's still functioning correctly. They undergo 50 hour checks and 100 hour checks on them. And that's literally to make sure they keep, they're going to be safe to fly. They will mm -hmm. be okay to fly. Before uh, every just, just to jump in there, sorry, sorry, Captain. Yep. Um, how, how rigorous are these checks, for example? Like, is it just like a, I don't know, a mechanic or a guy going around with a clipboard checking it out that looks like it's in the right place? Or like how, you know, how, how, how do they really go into it? Yeah, so not fully sure on the whole aspects of it, but sure, for sure. the annual check, I'm fairly sure they almost strip the aircraft down so the seats come out, they test everything. Oh, wow. The engines, engines are rebuilt every 5,000 5, hours, so that's the whole mm. engine stripped apart and then put that together, cleaned, so it's going to be going. So the engines we're using are from the 80s, 90s, and they're still going strong because they're so well maintained. Um, with the 50 and 100 hour checks, I think that's less than the annual, but still quite rigorous on it, where quite a few things are checked. Yeah, don't have to finish that. <laughs> mm, no, that's interesting. So give us some of your own personal um, examples of when you've maybe been in a sort of a dangerous situation or you could, you know, you're kind of worried that, oh shit, you know, something's going wrong here or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, okay. So when I was learning to fly, part of the curriculum is to take the plane up solo, so just you in the cockpit, so you can um, problem solve and handle everything by yourself so you're confident. You only do that when your instructor thinks you're capable of doing it, otherwise it wouldn't be safe. Hmm. Um, I did have one slightly dangerous scenario when I was doing that, when I was flying solo. Um, flying along, was concentrating on others on something else. Didn't really see the plane from my right coming until it was about, it looked quite a few, it was quite a few hundred feet away from me, but in the plane, Shit. it's hard to judge the distance. Yeah. Um, it was going above me when I saw it started to descend, so there would be the clearance, and there probably was about 800 foot clearance between us. So perfectly mm. safe with enough clearance. Um, but yeah, stuff like that can it Sounds like some top gun shit. Yeah, planes do crash into each other in the air because they just don't see them. 
Yeah. Uh, there was one crash where a plane was climbing and another one was descending on top of each other and they just oh, into each other. Um, is this so? Is, yeah. is this when you were learning, you're saying, or is this? Uh, yeah, that was when I was learning. Jeez. It's a learning experience at the end of the day when it's a safe one like that. You learn to but that, that, sound, that sounds quite catastrophic. Someone's rising, the other one's sort of descending, and then boom. Yeah, it is catastrophic. Shit. Yeah, the problem with flying is you don't really learn from your mistakes, you learn from other people's. Because if that's, you make a mistake, it could potentially go very wrong. That's actually Let's really say good that happens all the time. It doesn't happen all the time. But no, of course, yeah. Time. That's a really good way of putting it, actually. Yeah, you don't have the opportunity to learn from your own errors in the worst, worst of scenarios, but you do learn from other people's. Yeah. Whew, crazy. Uh, what's that, what sort of some of the emergency drills that you have to do uh, you know, obviously, like commercial airlines, you always get the safety briefing at the start and, you know, put the vest on, yep. the oxygen, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay. So with the recreational flying aspect of it, when you're learning, you learn how to recover from stalls. So that's when the airspeed of the aircraft drops below its... Let me start again. You want to restart the recording? Free off. Yeah. So when you're learning to fly, you do lots of different emergency drills, the most common, usually the most common ones which come up and the ones that will cause the most problems when flying. So one of them is recovering it from stools. Stools are where there's not enough airflow over the wings to keep it in the air, so it literally starts to fall out the sky. Jeez. Uh, that's, that's one that usually happens when you're landing or taking off. As of course, you're descending, you're climbing, your airspeed's gonna be low, either way and right, yeah. mm. still um benefit of that is when it happens you know what's going to happen you can feel it coming you know how to recover from it before it actually happens uh and that will that's one which can kill people if they don't know how to recover or they panic at that point so that one's quite drilled into you when you're learning uh, mm. another one is when the engine cuts out in the air for any any reason at all um you learn how to land it, look for a field around you, look for a road, look for an airfield, land it into that safest way possible. Uh, that's one that's also drilled into you quite well. Um, so you're kind of taught to look out for certain, for certain things, like you said, in these terrains, you're, you're, you're keeping an eye out, I don't know, looking at long stretches of land with the right width, yeah. for example, flat land, you know. Yeah. No dangerous. Uh, when you never, when, yeah, when you plan your flight route, you look for alternative airports along the route in case the weather, in case something happens. When you're flying along, ideally, you want to be following something so you know where you're going, but also, is there somewhere I can land? The Civil Aviation Authority for the UK, they put restrictions on how low you can fly. So over congested areas, you can only fly a thousand foot above the tallest object. So that will give you land clear distance as well. Okay. And yeah, so there is lots of safety things around it to make sure that if something does go wrong, you can land it, there will be somewhere to land. You know, one, one, no, that's actually an interesting point because what, what if your airport, which there are obviously you know, many examples of this, where they're in a, like around a congested sea, do you know what I mean, filled with skyscrapers yep. and stuff, uh, you know, at what, what point are you allowed to enter that, you know? Ma uh, you know, 
descend through that max height kind of is it, is it like a real uh, vetted corridor that you can get into uh yeah so you're only allowed to descend below those thresholds is when you're landing or taking off so we'll take the new york hudson river accident that happened um of course new york very built up not really anywhere suitable to land especially for the commercial airliners um taking off Sully lost both engines. It was then his decision to land in the river. It's at the end of the day, it is the pilot in command's decision. He chose his decision with his facts that he had. Um, everyone survived, which was good. But of course, if it's if there is no rivers, if it is all buildings, then there is going to be a problem. Yeah. How how difficult is that to land in a river? I mean, obviously you, you're used to landing on tarmac or something but a river that, yeah. that, that sounds crazy so there are courses available when you after you get your license you do learn how to do ditching into the water so mainly into the sea so that you land parallel to the raves so they don't flip you over how to land it their speeds to do and what to expect because of course if you're landing into water your undercarriage is going to catch you're then going to flip over Again, can be quite bad, but mm. these courses are there to help you learn what to do, how to help you, how to get the best possible result from it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, one question I had um, is basically one thing which scares the sort of shit out of people, right, or normal civilians who are on planes, is turbulence, right? Because I don't know how justified it is to be scared of turbulence and what actually is physically going on. I, I know it's you know, shuddering and moving from side to side, up and down. That's one thing which really scares a lot of people. Maybe talk to us about what, yeah, what's actually happening to the plane at that time and how dangerous is it or can it be? Okay, so turbulence is relatively safe unless it's severe turbulence, but the majority of it is quite mild. And the pilot and first officer, captain and first officer, will usually try to avoid turbulence as much as possible. Um, but what effectively is happening is as the plane's flying along, it's kind of hitting pockets of air, which are different temperatures. Uh, if it's hotter, you usually go up, and if it's colder, you go down. And that's what really it is, is your plane just getting pushed up with the air, getting pushed down with the air. Um, yeah. Well, that's, well that's, that's quite a basic description of you said it, which is, it's kind of put my mind at ease already, but <laughs> but you know what it is like. You know, there's times when you know it starts going quite crazy. Everything's rattling away, and straight away yep. you, you see the seatbelt sound come on, and everyone's like, "Oh shit!" Like this is fucked. Like, what's happening there? Is that a, is that a case? An example of what you mentioned earlier: severe turbulence. And what what what's causing that? Is it just bad weather or you know, shitload of pockets of that? That question. Yeah, right. I might. So when the seatbelt signs come on on aircraft, that's usually just for passenger safety, regardless of what kind of turbulence it is. It could be very mild, could be towards the severe end, but at the end of the day, the airliners want everyone in their seats, make sure they're perfectly safe, they're not walking up and down, so they're not going to get flung around with the changes in the aircraft, which can be quite violent. Um, yeah, it's literally just safety. Mm. Interesting. Well, that pockets of everything. I mean, that's certainly a, 
but my mind it is, so I like that answer. Um, right, let's talk about um, your, what was it, PPL, I keep forgetting, PPL licensed uh, aircraft so you can fly. What's the kind of step you need to take now if you wanted to go and do multi-engine or and have a commercial license or something like that? Well, what's the next little steps for you? So from the PPL, you can go anywhere with it. Um, in the world, you might need to get converted to that country's standards, but pretty much anywhere in the world. Um, to do uh, work to get paid for, you need the commercial license, which is more exams and another skills test, which is a practical test to make sure you know the maneuvers, you can do them all safely and you are safe to carry passengers with you. Uh, you can also do a night rating, which is five hours flying at night around, make sure you can land, navigate, as it's completely different at nighttime with only lights to see. You can also do the instrument rating, which allows you to fly in the cloudy, low visibility conditions. You can do the multi-engine rating, which allows you to fly two to four engine aircraft. And then you can also do the airline traffic pilots license, which allows you to fly the big commercial airlines. And with all of them, there's skill tests and exams, except for the night rating. Awesome, awesome. All right, well, without sounding too morbid, there's a question surrounding the sort of the psychology of a pilot, the mental state, because Obviously, we've heard stories, horror stories in the past of um, pilots who maybe have not been most mentally stable and the catastrophes that sort of led to that. Um, what kind of rigors and, you know, maybe examinations do you have to go to from a, a medical point of view to, to be able to fly a, 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 a plane of any size, regardless commercial, multi-engine or, you know, the size you fly maybe? Okay, so for the PPL license, um, you need, let me just start again. For the private pilot's license, you need what's called a class two certificate of, which is a medical certificate. And with that, you go see a specialized doctor in the um, aeromedical industry. They run different tests on you. They check your heart rate, blood pressure, check for diabetes, check for hand-eye coordination, check for hearing, quite, a, quite rigorous layout. If they find anything which they're not happy with, they will send you off to get checked out by a specialist doctor in that area, such as hearing, vision, that kind of stuff. And then you come back, they'll issue the certificate if they're happy. Um, it'll either be unrestricted or restricted. So restricted is like when you can't carry passengers because something could happen. Um, with the commercial and airliners, you go for the class one certificate which is everything from class two along with more rigorous testing to do with fitness and psychological evaluations on it. Um, of course, if you're flying a plane, they want you to be mentally stable, physically stable. They don't want you to suddenly become incapacitated. Otherwise, that's not going to be good. You're going to be making a hole in the ground if that happens. And they don't want you to start having these dark thoughts as you're flying along which is also going to be bad as well, as it happened in the French mountains mm, a few years ago yeah. with that pilot and the airline. Um, but how often are you sort of examined on this stuff? Because, you know, I mean, 
people can go, we go through bouts of maybe mental issues and all that stuff quite um, quite regularly. So I'm assuming maybe before even each flight, you have to go through some sort of test maybe. Um, so before each flight, you would evaluate yourself using the anagram that basically goes, are you fatigued? Are you hungry? Are you feeling okay? Have you been sick? Are you on medication? Um, if you are on any of them, you're probably not going to be safe to fly for that time. So it's better to leave it. Um, but if you pass all that and you're happy to fly, then you're fine to go. The medical certificate lasts for five years on a class two if you're under the age of 40. And then it's every two years from 40 to 50 and then every year from 50 above. And that's to make sure that you're still fit. Um, nothing's going on. You're still good to fly. Class ones may be slightly different to that with the reevaluation timescales. Um, if you give blood, you can't go flying for 12 hours. If you're under anesthetic, it's 24 to 48 hours after coming round. It's there's quite a bit behind it all to make sure that you're safe to fly. Sure, yeah, makes sense, definitely. Yeah, yeah, interesting stuff. I know when we were speaking earlier, you were saying that it took you a what or it takes someone about 45 hours as a minimum in terms of what training or experience flying, whatnot. I mean, that numbers, I mean, I can understand why it's so high, but it sounds quite daunting, right? Um, initially it sounds quite daunting of getting to there. Uh, the CAA recommend or have a minimum of 25 hours of flying with an instructor and a minimum of 10 flying solo by yourself which will get you to 35 and then the rest 10 is made up of whatever you need to work on. The average number of hours taken to fly for a person is, about, is around about 60 hours mark, but it can go up to in the 200 hour mark if it takes you that long. It can be done in 45 hours. Um, so when you uh, come up to when you're feeling ready to do your exam the instructor will put you forward for your practical test and then in that that's a very strict exam where you go through the maneuvers to show that you can do them you go through the navigation part to show that you know how to navigate the aircraft show that you can talk to the correct air traffic control unit you also go through all the emergency drills such as stalling um, engine off engine failures how to recover um, and then you also do the landings, so different types of landings that there are. It's just to prove that you can do everything, but the main point they're trying to look at is, are you doing them safely? Because if you're not doing it safely, they're not going to pass you, as it won't be good for anyone. But as long as you do it safely, then you'll pass, you'll be fine. You are a safe pilot, even though your hours are quite low to some people, and that can scare them as I don't think it's as scared that they have the low hours it's more some people have the anxiety of they don't know what it's like being in a smaller aircraft what experiences they're going to feel what's everything that's going to happen um, with all the pre-flight stuff though that you do and all the engine checks you do it is very safe to fly awesome awesome yeah, that's interesting stuff. Um, all right, just tell us what's sort of the costs involved and maybe the equipment required for 
a person who wants to, you know, take up flying, for example? Yeah, so flying is a relatively quite expensive hobby to take up. Um, and you also need quite a bit of equipment to go with it. So to get to the 45 hours mark, you'll be looking at about eight and a half grand straight off. And that's literally for the plane, for the instructor, get your hours in. Um, the majority of that is made up of the fuel that you use as it's 10 gallons an hour at £1.90 per litre. So it works out to about 60 quid an hour. Okay. It's just the on the fuel. Sure. Um, along with that, you'll then need to pay for the skills test itself. You'll need to pay for the hire of the aircraft during the skills test. You'll need to ideally purchase yourself a nice headset, which starts quite cheap, but if you want it to last and be good quality, they can go up to the thousands in it. You need to buy yourself charts, which is the maps used, and they get updated quite regularly, so you need to stay on top of that. Uh, you need to pay for the nine ground exams to get your PPL. You need to pay for your medical. There are, yes, yeah, so there's quite a few costs involved mm. with everything. Yeah. But once you get qualified, those costs are majority one-off ones. And then you're literally paying for the rent of the aircraft, keeping your medical, paying for your membership. And that's pretty much it. That's fair enough. Uh, before you take up uh, any of these lessons stuff, do you as a beginner have to do, you know, are you sort of running through any of these um, medical tests as well, especially the mental sort of state ones? Um, so before you take up flying, it is advisable that you do a trial lesson. So that's like a half an hour lesson with the instructor. You'll take the control, see if you like it, see if it's for you. If you enjoy it, you really want to do your PPL and you're up for it. It's advised to get your medical as soon as you can. As I had issues getting mine, it took me six months to get it. I should have soloed four months into that, but because I didn't have my medical, it was delayed by two months. And that's kind of set me back a bit. That set me back a bit as well. Uh -huh. um, but with that, so then get your medical, book in your first couple of lessons as well. Um, look for the revision material, Paulie's is a good website to use as they have lots of stuff on there for student pilots and normal pilots as well and then literally take it from there nice 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 yeah it's very interesting stuff all right we have come to the end of this uh pod it's been bloody brilliant uh enjoyed it very much so before you go let, let's just end on obviously the current hot topic in the world which is obviously covid um from a pilot's point of view how do you sort of see this being you know, influencing passengers on flights and aircrafts, et cetera? You know, what, what do you think about maintaining social distancing, for example, keeping everyone on a, on a plane safe and sound? Yeah, so that's, that's quite a big question at the minute. No one really has a crystal ball. Can't tell what the future is going to be like. Um, airplanes, they are confined spaces. They are the air in them is recycled about once every five minutes. So every five minutes, there'll be a whole new set of air in it compared to offices, which are about every 15 minutes with a decent HVAC unit in it. Um, but again, they're again, quite small places to be and then also the airports to go with them. Um, there are gonna be some airlines which just won't recover 
at all for this. So it's going to be pilots out of work. Um, some airlines will recover, but have a lower output, such as Virgin Atlantic currently dropped all its Gatwick operations and trying to move everything to Heathrow. Um, it will pick up again, as it always does after the 9-11 terror attacks in the US. It dropped then and it picked back up a few years later. So I would say in a couple of years, it will be back up and going quite well again. But for the time being, it's going to be hard on everyone. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of uncertainty there. Um, spawn. All right, Captain Greg Fletcher, thank you for your time. Uh, it's been brilliant having you on. That's all right. Thanks for having me here. It's been good. Hope yeah. it's been interesting for everyone. Definitely, definitely been interesting to me. Learned a lot. So, yeah, we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Um, everyone at home, stay safe. Goodbye.